0: Hello, and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel, and today we're going to explore the history of women in engineering. Since March is Women's History Month, it seemed like a good time for us to talk about a topic that was already on our radar to cover this year, and that's some of the historic context for the gender inequality that has continued to persist in a number of STEM-related fields like engineering. Computer sciences and Silicon Valley in particular have struggled to attract and retain female talent. And if anything, it's become far worse in recent years. Even as women have made strides in many industries over the last decade or more, women in U.S. computing and mathematics jobs has actually decreased over the last 15 years to less than 25%. And those numbers look even worse over the last nearly 40 years the percentage of female computer and information science college majors peaked in 1984 at about 37%. And since then, it has declined more or less steadily and today stands at about 18%. And more broadly, despite the fact that more than 50% of students graduating from college, 56% in fact, are women, women have stayed stuck at about 20% of engineering related jobs for nearly the last 40 years, as we're about to hear from our guest, Dr. Amy Bix, In 2019, the share of college-educated women in the U.S. workforce passed the share of college-educated men, according to statistics from the Education Department. So with us today, To learn a little bit about the history of engineering and specifically the history of engineering education and the myriad of challenges that women with technical talent and ambitions face is Dr. Amy Bix. Dr. Bix is professor of history at Iowa State University and director of ISU's Center for Historical Studies of Technology and Science. Among other books and scholarly publications, she is the author of the multi-award winning book, Girls Coming to Tech, a History of American Engineering Education for Women. Amy, welcome to History Factory Plugged In. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, Amy, you've, you've studied uh, the history of, of women, uh, particularly through the fields of, of engineering and, and other technical fields. And maybe we can just start with a a broad question of how would you summarize the narrative arc, if you will, of the history of women's progress and setbacks in engineering and technical fields?
1: Well, speaking specifically about the history of women in engineering in the United States, the important context to know is that engineering really, for many centuries, had ties to the military and to industry. And as you can imagine, those weren't areas that traditionally had a lot of openings to welcome women. So from the beginning, a lot of engineering was associated specifically with masculinity. But one thing that created a tiny opening was that... In the mid 1800s, the United States had the creation of state public land grant colleges, many of which did a lot with engineering programs. And most of those land grant schools were co-educational. So at the very end of the 1800s and the early 1900s, you have just a handful of women getting into studying engineering at those public land grant schools. A couple of the earliest ones are at my own school, as it was then known, Iowa State College in the 1890s. And you have a few other women in engineering at places like Cornell and Ohio State. But they're really doing it as individuals, one at a time. They don't know enough other women engineers to even really talk to. And as you can imagine, they had a pretty rough time because everyone basically assumed that engineering was a field for men. So a lot of the press coverage of that handful of women engineers talks about women invading men's field. That's the word they use over and over again, talking about these first women engineers as invaders in an area that everyone assumes should be for men. The thing that really changes that is World War II. Most people have heard of Rosie the Riveter, the women who worked on the assembly lines in factories in World War II. What people don't always realize is that those same factories were facing a manpower shortage in the engineering shop. So all of a sudden, employers were begging to hire women engineers And they realized there was only this handful of them out there. So World War II actually started some crash programs by government and industry and universities to give women some really quick training in engineering so they could go help out and win the war. So one of the big programs, again, was at my school, Iowa State College. They were part of a program by the Curtis Wright Airplane Company. That aimed to give about 700 women a nine-month crash course in aeronautical engineering, so they could go be engineering assistants in the Curtis Wright factories. So after World War II was over, it's not like everything changed overnight, but it's not coincidence that over subsequent decades things started to open up a little bit more, specifically. Some prestigious engineering schools that had traditionally been all male decided or were pressured to begin admitting women. One of the best examples is Georgia Tech. They'd been all male for years, and the mentality there very much associated engineering and scientific excellence with masculinity. But because they were a public university, they ran into a test case in the 1950s. A high school woman in Georgia who wanted to study engineering, she literally had no place to go in her home state because Georgia Tech was all male. And some of the women's groups in Atlanta started raising questions. And as it happened, the president of Georgia Tech was sympathetic because his wife and daughter were actually technically minded. So eventually the Georgia Tech Board of Regents agreed under that pressure to start admitting women in the 1950s under very limited circumstances. The first women, the first generations of women to come to Georgia Tech, they had a pretty rough time. There were all sorts of jokes and teasing and what we would call harassment, but it opened things up. The next really interesting case is Caltech. Because Caltech was private, they didn't face the same pressure as Georgia Tech. Instead, what happened at Caltech in the 60s is that their all-male classes of undergraduates started getting restless. They didn't have anybody to go on dates with. And they called Caltech Milliken's Monastery. They said (laughs) Caltech turns out brilliant scientists and engineers who are social idiots, who have no idea how to talk to women. And so they promised that if Caltech opened things up by admitting women, male students would be better behaved, they would dress better. They even said male students would stop smoking marijuana if women came because they'd be less bored. And Caltech (laughs) worried about losing male students to co-ed schools like Berkeley, This is the same period when other all-male schools like Princeton were starting to open up, so Caltech went co-ed at the end of the 60s. Other schools, MIT, they'd been officially co-educational for a good part of their history, but in the 70s, they started admitting more women. And in the 70s and 80s, you started to see more universities creating programs to encourage and support women in engineering. So the number gradually went up and then it plateaued. It got stuck at roughly 20%. And that's roughly where we are today.
0: Wow. Well, thank that. I asked for a narrative arc and you, you delivered and then so maybe. So thank you. Um, two, two, two thoughts and follow-up questions on that. First, uh, one thought is it's interesting how a lot of the sort of hinge points in that story were still women being given opportunities but really as a consequence of essentially the needs of men for lack of a better term of putting it right so in the context of world war ii um and in the context of the notion that having um more women in the culture would therefore improve the status of the man um the other thing that really struck me about that is i'm skeptical that um any school based in California would suggest that adding women would, therefore reduce the intake of marijuana. But maybe that's just my own bias. Um, um, so I'll, I'll move off of that. But the other thing that I wanted to ask you, Amy, is you're, you're, you're mentioning of women who would go into the field of engineering when it was clearly a field where they were, you know, not even a minority, but essentially non-existent in terms of the demographics. Was there some sort of commonality of, of um, the, the specific sort of fields of engineering that, that women historically would be interested in? Or was it, as you may have suggested, that it was just the case of women who are just very clearly off the charts engineering and technically inclined? I know in my own personal life, when I know engineers, they just are mechanically you know, brilliant people often, and was it is it a case of of that they were just natural performers with regard to engineering uh, potential or was there something that was gra- that, that they were gravitating towards in terms of how uh, engineering was going to make sense for them in their lives did that make sense as a question
1: yeah yeah that's a great question so a number of the first women who went into engineering And a number still today get drawn to it by some family connection. The woman who wanted to go to Georgia Tech, her father had been a Georgia Tech graduate, so she grew up with that loyalty. And a number of women, like a number of men, got into engineering because they were familiar with it. That's one of the problems that engineering actually has had until very recently, and some stay still today. That a lot of kids, if you ask them what an engineer is, what an engineer does, unless they know somebody in that area, a lot of kids will get an engineer confused with maybe a construction worker or a train driver. And as you can imagine, in that position, they visualize mostly men. So part of getting women to go into engineering was just having them familiar with that. Other women got drawn to engineering, again, for some of the same reasons guys did, because it seemed to offer relatively stable, relatively well-paid careers. And right. the thing about engineering, of course, is it has many subdisciplines. And one thing you still see today is that different specialties have different patterns. Some have a relatively high concentration of women while others still to this day have a relatively low representation of women. And one of the areas in particular that has drawn women is environmental engineering and related fields. And that's no coincidence, really, when the field of environmental engineering and environmental studies was emerging, a lot of people specifically thought that it might be particularly attractive to women because they envisioned women having that sense of wanting to serve the community, wanting to use their technical knowledge for a bigger purpose. So that's another factor to keep in mind.
0: Yeah. So another thing I wanted to ask with respect to that, Amy, is you mentioned the um, sort of barrier of entry into the field could be more difficult for women because of the association in many cases with the military. So how would you how would you compare the engineering field with other fields? Are there unique distinctions in terms of engineering, or uh, might the experience that women have had in in you know the engineering field be not dissimilar to uh, medicine or law or other other professions or fields?
1: There are definite overlaps to the history and issues today of women in engineering with women in the sciences, but I think overall it is a different historical pattern for precisely the reason that you mentioned. Engineering was so embedded in masculine fields of the military and industry and fieldwork In the early 1800s, a lot of men in engineering didn't have a degree, you didn't need a degree back then, you just went out and started working on the Erie Canal, or working in the Pennsylvania Railroad machine shop, and of course women couldn't do that. Whereas with science, there have certainly been a number of barriers and discouragements to women in sciences over the centuries. For a number of centuries, women couldn't get access to some of the best universities. Places like Britain's Royal Society excluded women from membership for centuries. But even with those barriers, there were always some ways in which women could participate in science. Some of them, as far back as the early modern period, the scientific revolution, they got a foothold in science by working as assistants to men in their family. So the great astronomer Caroline Herschel, she literally got started in astronomy by helping her brother with his telescopes. Marie Lavoisier worked as an illustrator and assistant for her husband's experiments in chemistry. So women had places in science as assistants, as illustrators, as translators. They had these specialized positions things like writing science books for children. That was very clearly something that was acceptable for women. You see the same thing in medicine. Even over the centuries when women were formally excluded from medical school, women were still by default, family healers, community healers, women always worked as midwives. So in science and medicine, women could get footholds in ways that really just didn't exist for women in engineering, and I think that made a long-term difference.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point Another that, big, you, that you make. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Another big thing there is that when women's colleges got started in the United States in the 19th century, a number of women's colleges like Vassar and Mount Holyoke were very eager to create science departments. They wanted their female students to learn physics, to learn mathematics, to learn chemistry, but none of the women's colleges even thought about studying a women's engineering class because the profession was so identified with masculinity. So that's another key difference there.
0: Yeah. And not, notwithstanding the argument that their presence somehow improves uh, the, the competency of men, what, what have been some of the key arguments in more recent history for why gender inequality in an industry like engineering is an undesirable attribute?
1: Well, part of it simply is fairness. Again, engineering jobs can be fascinating. They can involve really interesting intellectual questions, and they also tend to be relatively dependable, relatively well-paid jobs. So giving women access to those employment opportunities is a matter of fairness, a matter of justice. More than that, there's the question about who does engineering, whether it makes a difference. One line that I often use with my students about science is the answers you get depend on the questions you ask. So not always, you know, it's not like all women do science and engineering one way and all men do it another way, but patterns have shown that when you diversify a field, it opens up new questions. And sometimes having a more diverse engineering team will just raise new issues that might not otherwise have even been thought of. So there are a lot of examples, a lot of researchers have documented how, in some ways, certain biases can be literally built into systems. So a classic example is cars and airbags where those systems were designed for car drivers who were basically men of a certain height and weight. Mm. And what that means is that women like me who are five feet tall, we have to sit a lot closer to the steering wheel, which introduces a lot more physical risks, even Mm. death with the way those systems are designed. And now we're seeing all sorts of questions with computer algorithms, what sort of biases may have been built into those and the importance of paying attention to that. So all those are reasons to think about diversity in engineering and technical work.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and sort of related to that. I know one of the areas that you've, you've studied as part of this topic is the sort of association or correlation to gender identity. And and I know in some of your work, I believe you've you've connected that even to childhood experience and how iconography and pop culture and children's play and and the kinds of toys that are oriented towards boys or girls ultimately affects gender identity, of course, but also uh, discourages or promotes certain kinds of occupations. Um, So curious on your perspective there on how, pop culture and and children's play has perhaps um, held back women from being able to pursue engineering and other more technically related fields.
1: Absolutely. So again, the idea is that part of the way to get more women into engineering was to familiarize them with the field early on. And early in the 20th century, you had a number of toys on the market that were specifically intended to steer boys into engineering. The best example is the erector set. Advertisements for erector sets literally used the tagline, hello, boys. And the message to parents was, you should buy your young son this set, because then he'll begin tinkering, he'll begin building, and it will prepare him for a valuable career down the road as an engineer. And of course, there would have been plenty of young girls who maybe played around with their brother's erector set, but they weren't the target market. And it's really interesting to see how the gendering of scientific and technical toys continued over the decades. Mid-20th century, there was a pair of chemistry sets that were put out. They were absolutely identical inside, the same chemicals, the same experiments but the cover of one showed two boys doing a fairly complicated experiment. And it was called something like chemistry set for boys. And then the identical set, it also came with a pink cover that showed two young girls doing a much simpler experiment. And that was advertised as something like a lab technicians set for girls. <laughs> so. The marketing makes it very, very clear what they had in mind as far as what girls and boys were supposed to be envisioning about what they would do with these sets and why. The really interesting thing for me has been to see over about the last 15 years or so with what I call the movement to get more girls into STEM, there's been a whole entrepreneurial explosion of toys specifically designed to get more girls into engineering. And the best example of that, which some people may, may be familiar with, is a line of toys called Goldie Blocks kits. And those were designed by a woman engineer specifically to get more girls interested in hands-on tinkering. So they come with a story The first one was about a young girl who wants to build a merry-go-round to spin her animal friends on a fun ride. So girls are supposed to read the story and then the book comes with a kit with a set of parts that the girls can use to build their little merry-go-round. And so the idea is for girls to get comfortable with this. And that's very clearly gendered too. It comes in pastels. The creator of it said she made a prototype with metal pieces and girls just didn't want to touch them. So she found that the girls liked it better when it had pastel colors, but it also has the message that engineering is something you do for social value, to make your community better, to make people happy. And that's part of a mentality that when looking for careers, Young women tend to look for jobs that are not just that, that don't just pay well, they also want something that's going to give back to society. So, a lot of the recent outreach to women in engineering has emphasized that it's a way to make a difference in the world. Mm. So, you can see that coming through in this line of Goldie Blocks toys. And there are all sorts of other interesting kits on the market. There were doll houses that allowed girls to do the wiring so it would come with doorbells and lights that actually worked. And then a bit more controversially, you have the engineer Barbie dolls. I've actually got a couple of them on my desk right here. So that's something that you wouldn't have seen 30 years ago, but now they're out there. So it is fun to look at the history of toys and STEM and gender.
0: Yeah. So, Amy, I wanted to go back to a point you made a few minutes ago when you talked about the growth or increase of women in the field really hasn't changed for quite some time. I think you mentioned that it's around 20%. How long has it been sort of stuck at that that percentage?
1: The numbers here in the United States have roughly plateaued since the early 2000s.
0: And why, why do you think that is? I mean, what, what do you find to be one of the most interesting or, or misunderstood conceptions about women's underrepresentation in these jobs, at least here in the US?
1: Well, I think there are a bunch of misconceptions. I mean, probably one of the most fatal is the idea that that's somehow inevitable. And the problem is, when you look at other countries, some countries in Europe and even the Middle East, they actually have a higher percentage of women in engineering and technical jobs, which suggests that it's something cultural, that's not something simply inevitable or biological. So that's something important to keep in mind. And people always ask, you know, what's the solution? And the problem is if there were a nice, neat, simple, easy solution, we probably would have done it by now. And so part of the challenge is that some of the biggest barriers have now been eliminated or reduced. Universities that once literally wouldn't let a woman into classes, now you don't have that problem. Engineering societies that didn't appoint female members, now a number of them have women as presidents. So some of the most obvious barriers have gone. But unfortunately, what that means we're left with, in in some ways, we're left with these more subtle questions that go back to the STEM world and gender. There are still plenty of very, very serious problems to deal with. Sexual harassment, discrimination, people have heard about that in Silicon Valley, in other places but then there are also the more subtle questions the questions of bias that discourage women and minorities more subtly from getting into these fields and those are just by definition much harder to deal with
0: yeah and, and and based on your your research and and your your point that it's been relatively static here in the United States uh for the last 20 years or so would are you optimistic or more pessimistic in terms of the the prospect for for that changing over the next decade or so.
1: I wouldn't expect any radical jump unless something happens that I completely can't anticipate. I can't imagine something that would instantly double the number of women in engineering. I just don't see that happening. But over the long run, I do think there are reasons to be optimistic in that you have some very, very good people in places like the National Science Foundation, the National Academy of Engineering, our universities, places like the Girl Scouts, elementary schools, museums that are working very, very hard to support diversity, to encourage more girls and others to explore STEM fields. Some programs, you know, may work better than others, but by and large, the focus is really exciting. It was fun when President Obama was in the White House. They held the White House Science Fair every year that often specifically encouraged diversity. And there was one wonderful point where President Obama was going around looking at the kids' exhibits. And there was a group of Girl Scouts that had built a little device to help people turn pages of books if they couldn't do that. And so President Obama was talking with the Girl Scouts about the nature of innovation. And one of them looked up at President Obama and said, have you ever innovated anything? And he said, yeah, one or two things. But it was really fun to have that focus on children and innovation and STEM and diversity. So I think that's what makes me optimistic that gradually change will continue to happen.
0: Yeah. And are, are there any leading indicators that you're aware of in that, in that fashion? For instance, over the last decade, has there been an uptick in the number of uh, women uh, entering into engineering programs in colleges and universities or an increase in uh, admission into the postgraduate programs?
1: We're really sort of still in the middle of all that. One very exciting program that started a few years ago was a program called Girls Who Code which was designed to get more young women doing hands-on computer work around junior high school age. And so you're really seeing that cohort still moving forward. So I think the data isn't in, but I think the prospects are there. Computer science, that's such an interesting historical case because... In some ways, women were among the first computer programmers. You had women doing computer work during World War II, back when they were big machines that filled an entire room with thousands of vacuum tubes. And coming out of that, you still had women working with computers. And then the number of women going into computers plunged in the 70s and 80s. And that's a complicated story. Some people think part of it is that more of the personal computers starting into the home started to get more boys doing the hands-on computer playing around. And it got a geeky factor that tend to discourage girls. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on there, but that's a good case where we really realize that historical progress isn't permanent, that things can go backwards as well as forwards. So the number of women in computers plunged from something like 30% in the 70s down to really just about 10%. And so it's been a big battle to try to rebuild that. But I think we're really sort of in the middle of that process now.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. I wonder if there's a correlation there in the 80s, as you mentioned, with boys and video games.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's part of the whole connection. There's a lot going on. I mean, that's a complicated story that a number of historians have been looking at. There are a bunch of things corporations started to look for, specific elements when they were hiring. They started to look for a bit of that geeky lone wolf engineer. And when you go in looking to hire a certain type of personality, that's who you're going to come out with. So there's a lot going on there.
0: Yeah. Well, Amy, thank you so much for for sharing uh, your your perspective on a very uh, comp- complex uh, topic. So we appreciate your your insights. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, that concludes this episode of History Factory Plugged In. Thanks so much for joining and listening. Thanks again to Dr. Amy Bix. I'm Jason Dressel. Be well, and we'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode.